Hello and welcome to the Agora Politics Podcast. This is your host, Alex Mershak. Today I'm speaking with John David Ebert. John is a cultural critic, poet, and author of over 20 books, including Art After Metaphysics, The New Media Invasion, The Age of Catastrophe, and Dead Celebrities, Living Icons. We talk about mentorship, constructing a bespoke education, the monomyth, the night sea journey, ideology versus myth, Spangler and civilizational life cycles, late stage American imperialism, whether Western civilization is doomed, hermeticism, radical subjectivity, anima and animus possession, the tension between the sexes, civilizational immune systems, Schmidt's political theology in the state of exception, hyperreality, and living intellectual life outside academic institutions. This was a winding and expansive conversation. Any true intellectual exploration requires the willingness to go into unknown, even dangerous territory and to look foolish in front of others. For many important discoveries, owe their uncovering to the ridiculed few. But it is only in the space beyond and between what we understand in playing with ideas that we can hope to move forward. With that being said, here is my conversation with John David Ebert. And welcome to the Agora Politics Podcast. This is your host, Alex Mershak. With me today is John David Ebert. John is a cultural critic, poet, and author of over 20 books, including Art After Metaphysics, The New Media Invasion, The Age of Catastrophe, and Dead Celebrities, Living Icons. John, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much, uh, Alex, for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for coming on. I really appreciate you taking the time. I know we... Uh, Tried to set this up the first time and had a little bit of a mishap, but I'm really glad that we're finally getting the chance to talk. Um, yeah. With that being said, John, uh, you have covered a, a, a wide range of topics in religion and philosophy and history, uh, as well as your cultural commentary. Do you want to give the audience, for those who maybe uh, aren't as familiar with you or haven't read uh, maybe some of your books before, uh, a brief overview of sort of uh, who you are, your sort of intellectual influences, and where you're currently situated uh, in the intellectual space. Sure. Uh, my work uh, covers a broad range, uh, but there are really three primary fields uh, of interest that have been guiding me. One is the study of ritual, symbol, and myth. Uh, mythological, comparative mythology was where I started right out of college. Uh, I was hired by the Joseph Campbell Foundation to uh, edit some of his posthumous works. I did that job for about five years. Uh, eventually, I moved into studying media studies. That's McLuhan's world, the Toronto world with uh, all those guys, Walter Ong, Harold Innes. Um, there's a whole bunch of them, Neil Postman. Uh, then sort of moving into that field and then also moving to philosophy, uh, both on the one hand, uh, the big guys, the big guns, the German idealists from Kant, Hegel, Fichte, Schelling, uh, Schopenhauer, Nietzsche, Heidegger, down through that tradition, and then into French postmodern philosophy with uh, Foucault and Lacan and Deleuze and Guattari and Derrida, all of those guys. And so that became uh, my main area of specialization was uh, cross-fertilizing these three very different disciplines and uh, then using that as a kind of lens to uh, look at culture. Uh, I've written almost 30 books. It might be closer to 30 than 
than 20 actually, but I, I've lost count. Looking at cinema, looking at graphic novels, looking at literature, uh, looking at current events, uh, you know, spree killers, uh, you, you name it, I've probably written an essay or two about it. Um, so that has applying critical theory to the panoply of cultural phenomena that we're faced with in what I call hypermodernity. Um, so that's who I am and that's my background. That's where I came from. So, <clears throat> okay. And, and that's a really good place to start. Uh, and I'm glad that you mentioned there, uh, that your beginning of your career started off with Joseph Campbell because one of the offhand comments that I've heard you make before, I don't remember if it was in one of your videos or perhaps the first time uh, we encountered one another online, but you said that you lived in Joseph Campbell's head for a number of years. So you were sort of enwrapped by his, I guess, uh, worldview. I wouldn't call it exactly an ideology. Um, and I will actually be asking you about uh, ideology later. But uh, what did you... What did you mean from that? How exactly were you trapped in Joseph Campbell's uh, head? And how did you end up sort of digging your way out? Well, I was very fortunate that as an undergrad in college, um, I became enamored of his ideas um, because I was, you know, a total know nothing pretty much all the way up until I would say my third year of college. All I was doing was drinking, getting stoned, you know, partying, uh, getting B's, mostly some C's. Um, I wasn't particularly motivated. Uh, I was writing fiction. I was all, I've always written. Uh, so I was working on novels and trying to figure out whether I wanted to become a science fiction writer or a serious literary writer or what. Um, and then one night I was channel surfing and I saw The Power of Myth with Bill Moyers on. And I started watching that and I got captivated by that. And so I went to the library on campus and got his books, The Hero with a Thousand Faces and The Masks of God. And I read through those and that was like an atom bomb for me in my mind. And suddenly I was like, I want to know everything this guy knows. Uh, so what I then did subsequently was check all of his footnotes and go and get those books. If he notes someone or talks about someone, that means it must be worth reading. So I used him as a mentor for a while. And it's very important for young men to have this. Uh, they need a mentor. You need a guide as you're starting out uh, to get you going. The worst case scenario is that, yes, I was trapped in Joseph Campbell's mind for, I don't know, five, six, seven years, maybe something like that. The worst case scenario is these guys uh, who get stuck in someone's head, like, say, Gene Gebser, for instance, and they never get out again. And everything is all about Gene Gebser for the rest of their lives. Um, there are other thinkers, and it's important to uh, encounter them. And what got me out of Joseph Campbell's mind was my uh, contact with a living thinker, William Irwin Thompson, who mm -hmm. uh, was very critical of Joseph Campbell. And I had enormous respect for him and his mind. Uh, and I started reading his books. I called him at one point and asked him if I could interview him on behalf of the Joseph Campbell Foundation. And then he went off on Joseph Campbell. He told me, well, Joseph Campbell stopped reading books after 1945. He's not current. He never read Levi Strauss. He never read Marshall McLuhan or Rudolf Steiner uh, or Gene Gebser. And these were new names to me because they're not in Campbell's herb. So suddenly now I had to go investigate these guys. So I shifted over to William Irwin Thompson as a living mentor now because Campbell was dead by the time I started studying him. And he became my mentor for probably the next decade, something like that, maybe 15 years total, uh, shepherding me through the writing process. Uh, and there again, he, it was very important because he was very critical of my work. He was very honest about everything I sent him. Uh, if it wasn't any good, he would say, this is crap, uh, you know, start again, work on something else. Until I got on my game and started figuring my shit out. Once I knew with confidence that what I was writing was good and I no longer needed his opinion, 
I knew I was good to go. Um, so I was probably 35 by the time I reached that point of self-confidence, confidence in myself as a thinker, as a writer. Um, and then I didn't need Thompson anymore. Uh, I had branched out beyond both of those guys into all of these other worlds. So that's that's the story of that. Mm-hmm. So I, I find it interesting that you found uh, a mentor in, uh, in William Irwin Thompson. You said that Joseph Campbell kind of served as... Uh, as your mentor before that period, do you think that for uh, younger men, uh, people such as myself, for example, uh, you can sort of have a uh, a distant or uh, uh, you know no longer uh, active or living mentor in the form of uh, reading great books or um, you know trying to aspire to uh, uh, be similar to uh, great authors? Yeah. Um, mentor, I, I don't think it matters whether the guy's living or dead, but it's important to have someone uh, who you can then go back and read their influences, study the, the guys that influenced them so that you have a plan, that, that you have an organic worldview that evolves, that's consistent and coherent. Because with Campbell, I had to go read. Campbell introduced me to Young and to Oswald Spengler. And then I had to go read their influences, Nietzsche, Schopenhauer, Kant, Goethe. Um, there's a whole stream going from Cotton Goethe down to Joseph Campbell. Um, so it's very important for a young man to have that because uh, you have to have a plan. If you don't, then you end up with this random reading list. Oh, here's the 10 best books of all time. Here's the 10 best novels. Then it becomes a Time magazine, sporadic education, which isn't much of an education except being able to quote lines at cocktail parties. That's what you're going to wind up with doing that. You have to have a plan. There has to be an organic evolution to your reading where it's connected. It's got connections. That way you can see the worldview, even if you end up outside of that and critical of where you started, uh, which is perhaps necessary. Nonetheless, it will shape. Uh, it's like a chrysalis. You need to be inside of a chrysalis for a while before you can spread those wings. It's absolutely mm-hmm. essential for young men to have that. Yeah, so I, I, I agree with that. I think it's um it's very difficult to say something and it's pretty much impossible to say something authoritatively if you haven't at least surveyed the state of the art of whatever it is that you're talking about. Um, I wanted to ask you specifically, uh, I know you sort of already encapsulated your, your kind of move beyond that. And I agree as well that eventually part of the, your intellectual evolution will, will be rebelling against whatever it is that you previously did, finding holes in it, and then sort of trying to synthesize that into something that is beyond. That's sort of what we're trying to do with this podcast. Uh, I wanted to ask you specifically, though, about one core concept in Joseph Campbell, um, and that is the monomyth, uh, this sort of meta, um, I guess, ontological structure that seems to appear across different anthropological uh, locations throughout human history. Do you think that Joseph Campbell's conception of the monomyth is sufficient? I won't ask if you think it's complete. Uh, And does it, and if not, uh, where is it lacking? You can take that in any direction you'd like. Is it sufficient insofar as what? Uh, Just is it sufficient for describing the uh, heroic mode of being in the most general sense? I think it is. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think it is. It does turn out to be the case that um, almost any story involves a separation an initiation and a return of the hero having been put through hell, basically, 
in order to arrive back at the original wasteland situation of the social order that he left to bring the thing that was missing to that order. Um, whether you're talking about the Mahabharata or the Shahnama or, you know, the Chinese novel Journey to the West, it's all the same. These characters are all on journeys where they go out, they encounter very difficult things, maybe dragons, maybe monsters, maybe magicians, uh, maybe uh, other tough guys, whatever it is that transforms the hero into something new and brings him back. Um, it is the, it is the monomyth. And that word, by the way, comes from James Joyce. Uh, mm. Campbell took that out of uh, James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake. Um, so, yeah, it, it is one myth, basically, as far as the hero story goes. There are other kinds of myths, of course, that have nothing to do with the hero story that have to do with cosmogonies. Uh, and Campbell notes this in the back of The Hero with a Thousand Faces, where he discusses cosmogonies, where, where you have creator gods creating the universe. That's not the hero story. That's a different kind of myth. Um, and that's covered also by Jung's disciple Eric Neumann in his great book, The Origins and History of Consciousness, uh, which deals with the cosmogonic myths, the foundational myths. Let's say if you read the, take the Popol Vuh, the great Mayan uh, text, uh, it is a hero journey with two brothers uh, who go through transformations and ordeals, uh, but it begins with a cosmogony. Uh, the first, you know, I don't know, 10, 15 pages, uh, it's recounting the creation of the universe, uh, which is a totally separate thing. So those two have been, those two types of myth, the cosmogonic myth and the hero myth have been synthesized together in the Popol Vuh. Uh, so uh, just to name one example. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm going to make it a little bit personal here. Uh, we're going to have a little bit of uh, fun podcast therapy. Um, I personally had my own uh, descensus at Infernos, that is descent into hell, uh, starting around five years ago, um, basically in the fall of, uh, of 2016. Uh, I had a medical accident, which then um, led into... Uh, uh, my removal from school and the end of the job that I had at the time and, and, and uh, led into an addiction that some of the people who are listening to this uh, may know about. Uh, the point being that uh, as of right now, I, I think that uh, where I'm at in my personal journey is, uh, is that I'm in the process of coming back from a very long dark winter that I had been in for a number of years. And I'm attempting... Uh, in, in my current actuality to uh, enact out something like returning to the city uh, with the boon that has been gained from there. Uh, what do you think about that arc uh, occurring in one's own life and also uh, at, uh, at, at, at this particular um, juncture in my age? So I'll tell you, just to give you the exact context, I was hospitalized uh, with a, um, uh, well, with an un, um, with an unknown, uh, cause, of pancreatitis, uh, literally on the night of my 23rd birthday. Um, and so, uh, sorry, sorry to make this all about my personal story. I just wanted to, uh, take the opportunity to ask you about the, uh, the appearance of the anomaly or the thrust into the unknown or into the darkness uh, that can sometimes occur at different points in people's lives. I know uh, often case, often the times uh, for men, this can come later in the form of like a, a midlife crisis of, of various kinds. But what do you think about uh, people for whom this happens maybe in their mid twenties or, or even slightly earlier? Yeah, it can happen at any point in your life. And uh, moreover, I think that it doesn't just happen once. We, we go through periods of descents and rebirths. 
Then we come out and we notice for a while that our lives, our life, let's say, has stabilized. Uh, it's got a structure to it, certain group of friends, uh, and it's and it stays that way for a while. And then eventually uh, it de something destabilizes it again, and you might have another descent. You might have to go through another Nakia, a night sea journey, uh, and then come back again with uh, maybe those friends didn't work. Maybe this social situation wasn't the right thing. Maybe I had the wrong views. Then you come back and then you're, you've grown now. You, uh, so it doesn't just have, necessarily have to happen once. And I had a similar thing happen to me too at about the same age. Um, so that, it does happen early, uh, especially to young men who are looking for a worldview and an orientation to the world that makes sense out of things. Um, it does require a kind of Nekia, a night sea journey. Uh, I remember distinctly during, those were some of the roughest years of my life after I got a, out of college for about four years, I would say, from the age of 20 to about 24, uh, things were really, really rough because I didn't know what to believe. I didn't know where I was going. Uh, I, I knew I wanted to be a writer and a thinker uh, and uh, write about myths and culture and so forth, but I wasn't really sure how to do it and make it work on the practical scale. Uh, so I did have a major sort of schizophrenic crack up, you might say, uh, mm. metaphorically anyway. So, yeah, the, the, these descents happen all the time at various stages of life. Um, and I've heard you talking before about uh, seven-year cycles of chronologies um, yes. that I believe are related to the astrological phenomenon. Yeah, uh, um, I was going to mention astrology. I didn't know uh, if you wanted to talk about it or not, but inevitably those cycles will be correlated with astrology. If you checked your transits for when you went into the hospital, you'll see uh, probably Saturn in activation there in some capacity. Saturn does make tr transits every seven years. It squares itself, opposes itself, squares itself, and then returns because it takes 28 years to go around the sun. And every seven years, you'll notice yourself crossing through something difficult. There'll be a threshold of some sort. If you look back over your life at these seven-year thresholds, you'll realize they, they time perfectly with crisis points. Um, so Saturn is very often involved, but it's not the only one. Uh, you know, you can get Pluto in there as well. And when Saturn and Pluto are activated together, you're in for a very, very rough ride for maybe three, four years, depending on the, on the length of the transit and its orb. Uh, so these things are correlated with astrology. Um, I remember when I went into the hospital about the age of 21 for an appendectomy, uh, I was on the verge of death. Uh, the, the, my appendix had burst and there was poison spreading. Uh, but fortunately, it, it had been walled off. Uh, but the doctors didn't tell me anything. They just brought me in and operated on me. Um, they had to open up my intestines and so forth. It was a big mess. It took forever to recover this huge gash, uh, in my abdomen. Um, it was very hard to deal with. And then I looked later, I checked the astrology for this and I had Saturn transiting Mars and Mars transiting Saturn, like a pair of scissors at exactly the same time. Um, and the Mars is the body, of course, and Saturn has the sickle, uh, to cut you open. So it's, <laughs> it made perfect sense. The very week I went into the hospital, those two transits were happening simultaneously. Um, mm. So that's how these things work. That's why I find astrology very useful uh, as a kind of clock. It tells what time your life is. Um, you know, if you're in an underworld journey, you, the astrology will reflect it invariably. Mm. Um, I wanted to ask you about uh, returning to the, the myth. Uh, and the nature of myth and uh, the way in which myth uh, carries our, our society forward into the future and prevents 
or at least attempts to prevent uh, catastrophe. Um, Jordan Peterson says that uh, an ideology, this is his definition for what an ideology is, is that ideologies are incomplete myths. That is, they're sort of an attempt at articulating um, the uh, desired mode of being in the world, but there's something that's missing from them and that's unacknowledged. Uh, and that's what sort of brings out the dark side in them. I wanted to ask you, uh, do you agree with that distinction between ideology uh, and myth? And uh, if not, uh, where do you draw the line? Yeah, I think ideologies are very poor substitutes for myths. Um, they're not really myths at all uh, in, in any sense. They're, they're isms. Uh, they're like prefabricated thought systems that you can just attach to your brain. And now you're you're a this or you're a that type of person. Uh, and it's prefabricated for you. Like the military, you go into the military. You don't have to worry about your life because they've already thought it all out for you. Just show up. They'll tell you what to do. It's kind of like that. Uh, myths, on the other hand, are guiding and inspiring. And they're catalysts of transformations of consciousness. Um, it's very important to know what myth at any particular time in your life that you are living. What is guiding you right now? What is your mythological narrative that you see yourself following at this particular point? Because the narratives do shift as you move through life. Um, so a myth is something that helps straighten you out. Um, as far as Young and Campbell were concerned, as far as someone like Lacan is concerned, uh, Lacan doesn't have any trust for the what he calls the imaginary order disparagingly has no trust whatsoever because he's a rationalist for these mythological processes that come up out of the deep psyche and therefore are life-shaping, just like our instincts are. So they come from a center within us that is deeper than the rational ego. Uh, and the ego has to sort of listen to them and then be inspired by them. And they'll, it'll cause creative transformations in your life as you follow these myths. Mm. It's interesting that uh, you brought up Lacan there because I think uh, in particular, uh, French theory, and but also psychoanalysis just generally is sort of seen as unscientific. But in many ways, the Lacanian interpretation of how a myth might um, have originated in our, uh, in our subconscious, it fits a, a lot more closely with an evolutionary worldview um, that is scientifically based uh, than many of the other myths. Um, ideas about, you know, human cultural evolution and so forth. I think it goes deeper than that. And Lacan's, uh, the, the summary of Lacanian analysis of myth that you gave there, uh, would fit nicely with that. Um, Spangler has this idea of, um, cultures as themselves being kind of super organisms. Uh, and you're seeing this, um, this analogy uh, extended in, in sort of a more particularized form by people like Richard Dawkins when you bring up the idea of a meme, this idea that the ideas themselves are sort of these living entities and they have an interest in propagating themselves and in inhabiting uh, more human minds. And so the ideas that are best able to do that sort of win out and replicate themselves. Uh, Spangler, if we're thinking of culture as a superorganism uh, with respect to Spangler, the important, um, I guess, aspect that I wanted to get to today with you was this, this idea that if they are superorganisms, then naturally they would have sort of life stages that they go through. And yes. um, if you look at, you know, the, de the decline and fall of empires, there's sort of these, you know, punctuated equilibria. 
Uh, I think that you alluded to earlier, uh, this happens even within the lives of individuals. Um, all this is to ask you, uh, what stage in um, our civilizational life cycle do you think that we're in now? Do you agree with Spangler that we're sort of on the verge of a cesarean age uh, as we sort of are, and that we are entering sort of the declining phase of, uh, of the current incarnation of, uh, of Western culture? Uh, yes. Number one, let me say about super, on the topic of superorganisms, um, it may only just be a metaphor with Spengler. It may not even matter necessarily whether cultures are superorganisms, but what matters is that they behave enough like one to justify the analogy, and I think that they do, actually. Uh, they do tend to have life cycles uh, where there's an, a lyrical, uh, sort of naive, inspirational, uh, mythological orientation to the world that creates a few new religions, new burial cults. Um, that's all at the, the nascent phase, the, the inceptual phase of each one of these civilizations. And then they, they these myths then uh, guide the entire civilization uh, until the myths start becoming semantically depleted. They start losing their uh, guiding, shaping force uh, because there's only so much you can do with it. It's, it's like it already, just like a living organism, it has a predetermined life cycle. Uh, the myths can only be actualized from potentiality so long before the culture gets tired of them and starts uh, falling into this period of what Spengler calls Caesarism, where it becomes extensive instead of intensive now. The intensive phase he calls cult culture, the culture period, which are the first three phases that he analogizes to spring, summer, and winter also. So he also uses the analogy of the year, the seasons, uh, as well as the superorganism. So to him, it doesn't much matter uh, whether they behave like years or whether they behave like organisms, they do seem to have a life cycle that ends up in this winter stage of megalopolitan decline, where you get a shift uh, to extensivity, uh, cons pragmatic concerns such as economics, politics, feeding the masses, and very you have at this stage huge swarming impersonal populations living in cosmopolitan cities that are uprooted from the land. Uh, so you have big problems that have to do with uh, how do you feed all these people? Uh, swarming in now from the countryside uh, to these giant megalopolitan cities. And that's the phase that we've been in since the 19th century and the Industrial Revolution are the rise of these huge megalopolitan cities that have just gotten bigger and bigger and bigger uh, to the point of where now the city has been exported in the form of our gadgets. Uh, as Paul Virilio marks, take your cell phone with you, you're, you're connected to the city the whole time. Wherever you go out in the countryside, you find city because you have that phone with you. So the city has been sort of exploded outward and has exported itself, um, thus ruining the whole center periphery model there. It's sort of become a rhizome, uh, a lateral rhizome of connections. And with regard to the Caesarism, yes, I, I do think that we are headed for that. I think Donald Trump was a foretaste of that. Uh, he reminded me of Crassus, as I've written about the first triumvirate, which was Julius Caesar, Pompey, and Crassus, absurdly wealthy money men. Money plays a huge role in this late stage because it enables such individuals to form private armies. They form private armies who are loyal to themselves, uh, to, to Caesar or Pompey or Crassus, not to Rome. Um, and each one of them had private armies. So uh, once Crassus went to try and conquer the Parthians in the Middle East and he lost, uh, that destabilized the triumvirate. Now you're just left with Pompey and Caesar. So they have to fight it out in a civil war at Pharsalia, which they do. And Caesar, of course, wins. Um, so now you've got one man standing, so he's going to do it. He's, is, it's no longer electoral politics. It's no longer the politics of uh, the left or the right. It's the politics of money and then 
uh, ultimately zoological force. It sort of reverts back to this crude zoological power struggles. That's what Caesarism is all about. You hold the office for as long as you can before someone else assassinates you. It no longer has anything to do with voting. Um, I do see our civilization, it, it unmistakably bears the characteristics of Hellenistic, uh, the, the Hellenistic and Roman imperial periods uh, with these giant cities, mass populations. It's unmistakable. And the concerns mm -hmm. shift away from art and metaphysics to economics and very, politics. Very, heterog very heterogeneous as well. Yeah. Bread and circuses, you know, the, the Colosseums, mm -hmm. entertainment. Uh, you got to keep the masses entertained. That is where we're at. And I, I'm pretty sure some form of uh, Caesarism will emerge out of this. It's hard to know what form it will take. Uh, but I think Donald Trump was just like a, a glimmering of, of what's to come. Mm. So in some respects, Western culture is a relatively young culture, uh, at least compared to aspects of, uh, of, of the Far East or uh, Southeast Asia in particular. Uh, I wanted to ask you then, um, it, I, I believe there is a assertion that these, um, these older, more rooted cultures have already gone through um, this sort of cultural life cycle phase and are in some sense dead. You can correct me if this is this is incorrect reading of Spangler. Um, are we, uh, I guess, what's what's different then from like um, American imperialism in its late stage and something like Sino-imperialism, which is attempting to make a reemergence right now. But of course, if, if this assessment is correct, the Chinese have already sort of been through their... Um, their cultural transition and are more or less in kind of an eternal malaise. Uh, what do you think of that? Yes, uh, th those civilizations, uh, China and India, uh, Persia, Iran, to a certain extent as well, have all been through their life cycles um, and have reached a stage of kind of living petrifaction. Uh, you know, it's like a petrified forest. They, they, they had their, um, their great phases of art and metaphysics. That's all complete. That's finished. You're never going to get any new metaphysics out of China. Um, it's, it's done. It's a, it's a done deal. And once something is thermodynamically exhausted, then that's it. You can't bring new life out of it. Something else has to come along to transform it. And with the Chinese imperial system that began with Qin Shi Huangdi in 220 uh, BC, that was the formation of the Chinese, what Toynbee calls a universal state or a Caesaristic empire. And it's been that way ever since there. Uh, and meanwhile, it finished out its art and metaphysics through that, through the Han dynasty and on down through all the other dynasties, Tang and, and so forth. Uh, whereas America, yeah, so you're right about Western European civilization slash American being, in a certain sense, the youngest and the newest. Uh, it was born, you know, uh, around the time of Charlemagne, let's say, uh, 750 uh, AD, and uh, is the youngest. But from another point of view, it's the oldest because uh, culture originated in Paleolithic Europe. That's where the whole idea of art and metaphysics and having ideas was born in Europe. So in a certain sense, it's a, it actually turns out to be the oldest of all the civilizations, even though that's a different culture. The Paleolithic and the Neolithic are qu quite distinct from uh, this civilization that began with Charlemagne that we're living at the tail end of right now. Um, so it is very different. And American imperialism still has yet to announce itself in a Caesaristic form that we can then morphologically compare with the Chinese version of it. It's it's still nascent. It's not quite there yet. Um, it's, it's in its early developmental stages over the next century or two, 
that it will map itself out into a universal state, which I'm quite certain that it will. Um, and Spangler overlooked uh, the Americans ironically fulfilling this role. For some reason, he, he didn't see them as analogous to the Romans at all. Uh, he just called the Americans dollar trappers, no past, no future. Um, so I think he thought that it was going to come from Germany. Um, but yeah, so that's my comment on that. Do you think that Western civilization, uh, and I mean, we can do more broadly Western civilization, but also if you want, you can talk about specifically the American context has lost touch with our own, uh, with our own mythos, the sort of rejuvenating force, uh, lying beneath our culture that allows us to continue to, you know, transform chaos into order uh, and, and and renews itself in each generation. Is that part of why there's a sense, I mean, I, I'm just speak as a young man myself, there's a sense among the young men in particular that we're in a profoundly sterile, anti-vital culture. And I think that it has something to do with uh, losing connection to these sort of deeper, um, well, to our roots uh, more broadly. Um, do you agree that Western culture is losing, uh, is sort of forgetting itself? To a certain extent, yes. Um, our myth, uh, let's say what Spengler calls the Faust myth, which is the, the main myth of Western civilization, this idea of infinite conquest of everything, infinite conquest of knowledge, infinite conquest of space, um, infinite space itself has been what he calls the prime image of our civilization that drove the cathedrals up out of the ground. You know, you walk in them and you immediately get a sense of this expansion into an infinite cosmos. Um, and walking into one of those, in, let's say you could go back on a time machine, walk into one of those and you would look up and say, this is why we went to the moon. This, you, you can already see it. It's pregnant here with this expansion will continue throughout this civilization to the moon. We will be the first to go to the moon. It's part of the mythology of the Faustian expansion myth. So, and America has fulfilled that with its, you know, westward hoe, you know, its conquest of, of the continent um, has fulfilled that myth. So the myth is still there. The Faust myth is still there. It's still driving our sciences. Uh, it'll continue like an echo long after uh, the original motivating spirit has died. Um, and it will continue shaping our, our arts, our sciences, um, our need to have an encyclopedic knowledge of absolutely everything. But that's a trademark characteristic of this culture. Other cultures don't necessarily have that. Um, each culture has a different attitude toward history. Some cultures are ahistoric, like the Greeks and the Indians. We don't know a damn thing about Indian history because they never wrote any of it down. The, the concept of an Indian historian uh, is non-existent, pretty much. The world for them was a dream. Uh, that was their myth. That was their central image, the world as Maya, as a dream. All the statues on their art have closed eyes. They're, all the statues on Greek art have open eyes. So they're open to the world. Uh, but ahistoric nonetheless, um, they have a sense, even though the Greeks invented history, you have to keep in mind that the histories, um, uh, let's say of Herodotus and Thucydides, these were guys who participated in the very events that they're writing about. Um, anything that existed before they lived is dumped into the dustbin called myth. And they just dump it into that. Those are the, the days of the giants. Those are the days you know, of the Cretans and so forth. Um, so they're ahistoric, uh, not quite to the full degree that the Indians are. It's a, it's a matter of degrees. Whereas the Chinese, the Egyptian, and our civilization have been the most historically minded because these three civilizations, we know who every single ruler was. 
because every one of them kept careful records and careful track. The Egyptians are mummifying their dead, preserving the dead body as a will to the future, uh, not to burn it and wipe it out. Um, so that matters. And uh, so the Egyptians more or less actually invented history they, because they, they wrote down everything. Every event that happened is on record there in Egypt. Same thing in China, uh, except there we've had the tragedy of the burning of the books. So occasionally the Chinese collective consciousness will go into this amnesic mentality of wanting to forget everything. So they, they burn all their books. So there's been a lot of loss in China as in contrast to Egypt, which never did that. They preserved every single thing. Uh, so to our Faustian Western European civilization as a will to the future, a will to conquer space. And it's still going and it will continue going for a few centuries, I, I think. Um, but um, yeah, are we losing contact with it? Um, yes and no. So maybe we are. Maybe it's becoming semantically depleted and it will give birth to new internal proletariats that will be new groups that pop up just like the slaves did uh, who, with the Spartacus slave revolts uh, in the classical civilization that eventually became receptive to Christi Christianity as an internal proletariat that then emerged out of the chrysalis of uh, the Hellenic civilization and announced a whole new civilization, what Spenger calls the Magian or Judeo-Christian Islamic civilization. Uh, so we may have, and I get this feeling quite distinctly within our society, especially within American society, of lots of internal proletariats who are in this society but are not of it anymore. They've got a different DNA. They've got different programming, uh, and they may cohere and coalesce uh, to become a larger you know, sort of organism that emerges within the mother body of this dying civilization. So there are all these dynamics that are going on at the same time here. Mm. That's uh, that's very interesting. I wanted to ask you, uh, since you've spent much more time studying uh, comparative religion than I have, the uh, the Vedic texts in India are, are those not of uh, Indo-Aryan origin? Isn't there a deeper yes, connection no. there to Greece? <laughs> no, uh, I, I remember this this phase that was going on for a while where there were these Indian pundits uh, who were political, who were trying to deny that the Indo-Aryan invasion ever occurred and that mm. the Harappan civilization is perfectly consistent with the Vedic civilization. It is not. I went back uh, to check that very carefully uh, and undertook a very, uh, a very focused study of the evolution of early India in particular, uh, Harappan society on the one hand, and then the Vedic society that comes in. These are these are two totally different cultures. There is no doubt about it. The Indo-Aryans have horses, the Harappans do not. There are not horses there. They come in with these horses, they have portable altars, the Harappans do not. They have temples, they have fire altars in temples that are on large scale architecture. They're not nomadic, they're not portable, they're not moving around. The Vedic Aryans are, and then they produce yeah, the, the oldest of the Indian texts is the Rig Veda. So they produced that. It's in Sanskrit, which is a language uh, that at the time still had pretty close affinities to the Persian language. So uh, these two peoples could not have been separate for very long. The language of Zoroastrianism in the Gatas is very similar to the Rig Veda. And if you look at the Rig Veda, um, there are hardly any goddesses mentioned in it. Uh, there, are, there are no references to reincarnation and karma and yoga yet. So there's a very strong suspicion that all that comes from Harappa. Yoga, we, we find stamp seals with uh, figures in yoga posture at Harappa. Uh, so it's very likely that yoga came from them, reincarnation and karma. And then we've got two totally separate societies here 
that gradually then fuse together, just as every society does. When, in, when newcomers come into a landscape and they bring, uh, this is called land nama, where they come in, it's called land naming and claiming. They come in, uh, let's say the Spaniards come in and they say, oh, that hill over there with three trees on it uh, that the Indians called whatever, we're going to call it New Golgotha. And, and so they recode the landscape with, with their incoming mythology. But that's only part of the process. The other part is called acculturation, that the culture who has been in that landscape aboriginally for a very long period of time slowly starts uh, to digest, absolve, and absorb the incoming culture, and the two gradually fuse together. So that's what happened in India. Uh, there are examples of it happening in America with our comic book superheroes. Many of them are taken from Native American myths. Uh, Spider-Man, Wolverine, uh, Spider-Woman, Batman. Uh, those are all uh, Native American characters. Not all of them, of course. Some of them come from Scandinavian myths like Thor and Loki and so forth. Uh, but it's a kind of fusion. You can see it in the popular culture. These two cultures with their two different sign regimes fusing together. Uh, and it happens at the, it can happen at the popular level, which I suspect is where it happens first, but it also happens as in India at the high level where you get with the Upanishads that come in after the Vedas. Now you get this guy coming in named uh, Yojanavalkya, as his name implies. Now he's teaching yoga to the Brahmin priests and making fun of them, making fun of their traditions of pouring butter into fires. You don't need to do that for enlightenment. You just sit in one spot and you meditate on the, the fusion of Atman with Brahman. So there again, you can see, and this is high culture now, not pop culture, the Upanishads, but nonetheless, you, you can see the fusion going on here. These, these uh, Yojanavalkya teaching this ancient aboriginal yoga religion to these incoming Vedic peoples with their priestly cults. Um, so yeah, that's how that process works. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the reason I asked you about that is just because I'm always interested in the, uh, the transformation and the survival of knowledge across generations. Uh, as someone who's interested in the history of ideas, uh, I know just from being around now, I mean, we have so many ways of preserving and uh, replicating knowledge now that we didn't have before, and yet there's still so much that's going to go to waste that won't survive this time. And so I assume it must be the same in all other times that uh, vast amounts of human knowledge has been destroyed uh, or suppressed and then otherwise lost to time, um, various kinds of entropy uh, that seeps in. And uh, one of the interests that drove me to Jung when I first uncovered him uh, when I was younger was not only just some sort of personal, um, I guess, psychological journeys that I was having, but also the fact that he took the mystical tradition, uh, the alchemical tradition, the hermetic tradition in the West seriously in a way that not a lot of other uh, well-known thinkers and scholars uh, did or have done. Uh, and I know that much of that tradition uh, did not survive uh, the, the medieval period and, and later stages because of the fact that uh, largely it was suppressed by Christianity in particular. Um, and so I wanted to ask you about the hermetic tradition in the West uh, both how Jung viewed it and whether or not you think it's relevant today. I see a lot of, um, uh, I, I see fragments of it uh, existing, for example, persisting in the New Age movement here in the United States. So New Age theology is very closely tied with, um, with it's, it's very closely tied in with capitalism um, and, you know, money making and a lot of, if you get into like sales and persuasion, 
uh, a lot of the stuff that they talk about there, even hypnosis, um, will make these sort of esoteric references to aspects of the alchemical tradition or the hermetic tradition in the West. So I wanted to ask you what your perspective on that tradition is, uh, how you felt like Jung dealt with it, and then whether or not it is worth paying attention to, because most people just sort of dismiss it as a kind of quackery, uh, when really we could have all been like hermeticists if things had sort of worked out a little differently. Yeah. Right, right, right. Um, yeah, so the hermetic tradition has always been this sort of underground counter tradition uh, in the West. You know, it goes back to the Orphics in Greece, who are counter to the official Homeric pantheon. Uh, and so not much of their writings has survived, a bunch, a bunch of fragments, bits and pieces. So it gets suppressed because it believes in things like reincarnation. Uh, it has different myths, uh, a more telluric, earth-oriented basis for it. Uh, so it's very different. But what happens in the West is that it gets recovered during the Renaissance when in 1453, the Ottomans go in and they conquer Byzantium and they chase out all these Greek monks who flee to Florence and they bring all these texts with them, the Corpus Hermeticum, uh, the writings of Plato, Plotinus, uh, basically the whole Hermetic tradition, they bring over with them and they introduce it to Marsilio Ficino and he founds a school based on the study of these texts and the translation of, of the Greek into uh, Latin and uh, then begins the process. The painters hear about it, they get excited, and it starts turning up in Botticelli, and it starts turning up in Raphael, and Leonardo, Michelangelo. They're all schooled in the Neoplatonic uh, slash Hermetic tradition. So it forms an underground tradition as the centuries go on. It survived, It does survive all the way down to Carl Jung. Francis Yates writes about it in her book, Giordano Bruno in the Hermetic tradition. Bruno is another one of these guys who is in that tradition and is counter to the mainstream tradition of atomism and materialism uh, that comes in in the 17th century and begins to displace alchemy, which drops out. Once the uh, the atomistic philosophy is recovered in the, the 17th century, you get Robert Boyle writing about it, and matter becomes particulate, no longer made out of the four elements that you can translate into each other through alchemical processes, but it's particulate. It's all just particles slamming into each other. So we get this ridiculous billiard ball model uh, that we've inherited is the official mainstream version of physics ever since. Alchemy drops out and the imagery uh, gives way to the secret societies, the Rosicrucians, the Knights Templar. They pick up all this, all the images of alchemy. Um, mm. It turns up in Jakob Burma's mystical writings with all his wonderful illustrations that he has. And the tradition does. It, it does continue down through Goethe. Goethe picks it up. Uh, Goethe had one foot in both worlds, the mainstream and, and the hermetic tradition. Uh, and then also down through the 19th century to Rudolf Steiner, and eventually it arrives uh, to Carl Jung as well, who's in this tradition of having one foot in respectable medicine, in his case, science, and the other foot in the hermetic tradition with his love of alchemy and Gnosticism uh, and interpreting texts in a very hermetic way. And so it's a necessary tradition because it keeps alive uh, the myths, uh, the myths that are being ignored, marginalized, and shoved out by the mainstream systems, in our case, Christianity versus the Hermetic tradition, in the case of the Greeks, uh, the Homeric religion versus the Orphic, um, because there's lots of stuff going on in that Hermetic tradition that, vi that can vitalize uh, the mainstream. Goethe tries to fuse both of them together in Faust, which is why it's, it was Jung's favorite book. It's one of my all-time favorites as well. I'm going to do a YouTube series on it uh, at some point. But So that's, those are my thoughts on the Hermetic uh, tradition. Well, one of the things that I think is uh, is what attracted me to you as a thinker was that when I first encountered you, uh, you seemed very open about 
uh, hmm. talking about your own subjectivity. This is something that isn't exactly encouraged uh, these days in the West. I mean, if you're in like very far left circles, they're, they're all about subjective perspective, but in a very ideological way that's kind of superficial. I mean, the fact that you're willing to talk about uh, experiences you've had, uh, yeah. you know, intuitions of a mystical phenomenon, these kinds of things uh, very openly in the public and you don't feel ashamed about it. Uh, largely in Western culture, if you're anything like us, you were probably raised in a sort of Judeo-Christian um, uh, yep. tradition that's sort of combined with scientific material rationalism. And so all these things are taboo subjects. You're not supposed to sort of talk about them. Even if you uh, maybe think you experience them, you're sort of sort of just dismiss them. You sort of learn to um, there's a kind of self-hating of your own intuitions, of your own um, senses that you're sort of t you're sort of trained to turn that off because uh, we it's much easier for us to all be on the same level of reality for us to sort of conform if we don't take our subjective experiences seriously. Uh, but what I found inspirational about talking to you was that when someone does come out and actually says, no, 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 I have these experiences and, you know, I, I can't verify them necessarily or say that they're universal for everybody. But this is this is my perspective that actually gives courage to others to come out and say the same thing. Um, and so. I wanted to ask you about um, your willingness to, you know, share those thoughts in public, and also just the general dismissal that we get from um, hardcore materialists, because it's looking like, you know, the deeper we go with this physics stuff, uh, and especially if you get into theoretical math, uh, all of this uh, mumble jumble about, you know, the the world being exactly as we thought it was, uh, starts to sound a, a little wonky, and and a lot of the um, a lot of the more ancient traditions, uh, including uh, some of the Hermetic um, Gospels, begin to sound uh, a little bit more realistic at different levels of abstraction. So what is your take on sort of the turning away from your own subjectivity that is enforced in our culture? Um, yeah, I have no compunctions whatsoever about, uh, uh, you know, I've written an autobiography, I've published that, I've got a, a video version of it on YouTube. Uh, where I tell my whole life story, basically pr pretty much everything. I probably, let's say, confessed to 90% of, of my life uh, in public. So it, it is public domain now. People know it. Um, in a way, the media has something to do with this because we're with the Internet. We're living in an age in which the Internet does, has a dissolving effect on the partition between the, per the personal world, the private world, and the public world. Those two worlds have normally been kept separate uh, especially through the Gutenbergian galaxy, uh, where those two worlds have partition, very firm boundaries. But electronic media has a dissolving effect on these kinds of boundaries, especially the Internet. So there is that. I think it does contribute to a climate of, of putting the personal out into the public. And I've done quite a bit of that with the autobiography. And I've also had, as you say, all these mystical experiences uh, that have happened to me uh, that changed my whole worldview, changed my whole orientation to the world. I never had any beliefs in the afterlife. Um, I thought mediums were kooks. Um, I didn't realize I never took seriously that you could actually talk to the dead. Uh, but once I got into that world and stepped into it, it's one thing to talk about something. It's another thing to experience it. You can talk about how cold you think the pool might be or how hot the hot tub might be. Get into it and then feel what it's like. And then you're going to have a different opinion. So that's sort of what has, has happened. Um, so certain experiences that I had, such as the death of my mother, uh, sort of forced me into a situation where, okay, well, let's try this. Maybe if a medium can talk to a dead person, 
it'll be my mother. I'll recognize her. I know, know her very well. And it was her, 100%. I had no doubt whatsoever. Um, my brother did. He was a skeptical going in, but not after that conversation. It's, he realized that it was real. Uh, and so certain things follow from certain things. Uh, um, if you make an inference, uh, certain deductions must follow. If this is true, then this must be true. So let's go check it out. And so that's how it was. It was a chain of, of these kinds of inferences and deductions, uh, starting with watching near-death experiences on YouTube, listening to people describe their near-death experiences, hundreds of accounts of them. They all agree. They all say the same thing. I don't need to go to India to know that India is real because everybody who tells me about it tells me the same shit about India. I have to infer that it's a real place. Um, I'm living in a, in a sane world, right? Uh, same thing with the afterlife. I realized everyone's describing the same place. So it, it's real. It, it's there. That was sort of point A. And then my mother's death was the next thing. And then talking to her uh, and so on. It, it just led to a chain of, oh, well, then this must be true. Then that must be true. Uh, and just using my brain to go along and check it out. I'm not a gullible guy. I was an atheist through, despite having studied ritual, symbol, and myth. Campbell was an atheist. Uh, most people don't know that. He did not believe in the afterlife or reincarnation or anything the least bit spooky, uh, despite his interest in mythology. Um, so I was, you know, I was an atheist for a very long time, up until my mid-40s, uh, before I started to sort of open the door into this world and check up on it and, you know, study it and see if it works. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, it does work and it is real. So, yeah, so if, if I believe that, if I have that experience to back up that belief, uh, then I have no problems sharing it with the public because I've got firm ground to stand on, namely my own personal experience. So that's what I have to say to that. Excellent. Um, and uh, back to Young, one of the <clears throat> one of his ideas that people sort of uh, popularize today uh, that still seems to carry some weight with it is uh the notion of shadow work a lot of uh, a lot of different kinds of rehabilitation groups men's groups uh different kinds of spiritually focused um gatherings uh talk a lot about doing shadow work and focus on you know uh understanding your own shadow uh, i know from uh, having reviewed uh, your autobiography online that you've got your own uh host of shadows and uh, i think you you can tell from the brief uh personal information that I shared with you at the beginning of this conversation that I've got my own as well that I'm contending with. Um, and so what I wanted to ask you was that, do, do you think that a lot of the pathologies that are currently prevalent in our culture uh, with sort of the decadence, and I, I, I believe that we're in an, a, a decadent stage of, of our culture, um, are the result of uh, unmass not acknowledging our own shadow it seems to me like there's sort of a uh a refusal to acknowledge uh our own shadow just as a as a culture um and and this percolates down to the individual level uh and as a an addition to that uh question uh i wanted to pose to you as well that i think a lot of the uh, tension that exists between the sexes which has been sort of exacerbated uh, through the pandemic, mostly because of people's loneliness, is a result of various kinds of what Jung would describe as uh, anima or animus possession in, in males and females. That is, uh, animus, uh, anima possessed men and animus possessed women. Uh, do you think that that's playing a role uh, in um, in sort of uh, 
resentment between the sexes that are unable to figure out ways of coming together. And then uh, it, to the more broader point about uh, of, about shadow work and whether or not uh, that has sort of a place in addressing some of our broader cultural pathologies. Well, I don't think it has anything much to do with the anima and the animus because those are always there. They're always prevalent regardless of where you're at, what cultural phase you're in. Uh, those are always problems where Jung says that the man, uh, the, the male unconscious is characterized by a woman, the anima, and the female unconscious by a man, the animus. And the anima has to do with inferior feeling. Uh, and so you get the, the moody male. Uh, the moodier a man is, the more possessed by his anima he is. Uh, with women, the animus has to do with inferior thinking, with, uh, and so you get opinionated women. Women who just spout opinions, uh, and the more of them they spout with dogmatic certainty that what they have to say is true, with unshakable conviction, the more you've got an animus possession. My uh, paternal grandparents were this to a T. My, my grandfather was so moody uh, when we would go over to visit him that you couldn't even approach him. He was always in a bad mood. This is the worst outcome of an anima possession. The grandmother, my grandmother, on the other hand, was always spouting truisms that you couldn't quibble with, that you couldn't argue. Uh, you know, you were just there to sit and listen. Um, that's an animus possessed woman. So the way to avoid this is through undertaking the individuation journey, getting to know your unconscious through the various practices of active imagination, study of your dreams, keeping a dream journal, writing down those dreams, learning to meet that mysterious countersexual person within you. Uh, she always appears as the mysterious woman in a dream, not a woman that's this or that woman out of your life, but this mysterious, alluring female. She appears a lot. That's who she is. Same thing with the dreams of women. Uh, the mysterious man. It's always someone that you don't know. That's how you know that that's who it is. And getting to into a dialogue with them is absolutely crucial for uh, getting into a relationship with your unconscious, with the collective unconscious. But this has to be worked out through actual relationships with actual people, because it's necessary to project the anima, uh, let's say for a man, onto a woman in order to mm -hmm. see it and make it visible and know that it's there and then to realize what the projection is. So the projection actually needs, the anima rather, needs to be sort of integrated in between the ego and the unconscious, not projected outward in between the ego and the outer world, where it causes illusions, um, lots of illusions and misconceptions between the sexes where things go awry. So it's a process of learning this. I don't think it has much to do with where we're at right now as a culture. Uh, the, the tensions between the sections that are going on right now, I'm convinced have a lot to do with the internet. Uh, here we, again, we're with media studies. Uh, the internet is a culture that encourages uh, quick knee-jerk responses, uh, opinionating, uh, without necessarily having any knowledge. Uh, you're, anyone can opinionate whatsoever, whatever they want on Twitter, uh, whether it's worth anything or not, whether they've put any thought into it or not. And there's a knee-jerk, quick reaction culture uh, that sites like Twitter uh, configure. The availability of porn as well has caused a problem, I think, too, between the sexes. Children are learning about this stuff, in my opinion, way too early. Um, they have easy access to it. Um, I think it's they're not ready yet for that, and it's disturbing to them. Um, and as they grow up and become teenagers, as, as they've started watching porn at seven, eight years old, uh, you've got a different mentality when you encounter the real relationship in the outer world. You have all these expectations that are fantasies. 
you know, the guy should have a big dick, the woman a big breast, and all these things that porn has misled you to expect of the opposite sex you think you're going to get. Then you encounter reality. And reality has something all, you know, it's a whole different story there between the sexes. They've been misled by a plague of fantasies and illusions uh, from the availability of porn on the Internet. Um, so I think porn is one, one of the culprits here uh, in the, the damaging relations between the sexes. Uh, but the Internet, in a broader sense, I, th I think is, is the problem, uh, encouraging this uh, very short-tempered, quick reaction culture of, uh, you know, knee-jerk responses without giving any thought to anything. It's a narcissistic mm -hmm. culture now. You're encouraged to be narcissistic. Have your own avatar, your own Facebook account, your own this. It's all me, 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 me. Um, how dare you say anything against me? How dare you tell me your opinion? Uh, here's my opinion. Um, whereas it's much easier to get into a fight or an argument or tell someone what you really think over the Internet because you're not in their present physical company. Um, when you're in the present physical company, there are more social buffers in place uh, to control yourself. Uh, that's why we have such a thing called politeness uh, as a buffer in human society to make it livable. The Internet, again, has a dissolving effect on social buffers, such as politeness. Uh, there are no consequences if I tell someone to fuck off on Facebook. What's he going to do? <laughs> There's no consequences. There, Here you go. There are no social buffers. So the Internet has, I believe, uh, a liquidating effect on social norms, on society itself. It is very antagonistic to having a social order. So those things all combined together uh, are, are why things are the way they are right now with, with the sexes, I believe. Well, I, I agree with your analysis there. Um, and it's a very McLuhanistic uh, one that, you know, the medium is the message and there's all this sort of uh, uh, friction. I mean, really sparks flying because of the fact that you're bringing things uh, that are far away into immediate contact that have not prepared for that uh, encounter. Um, but I, I was thinking less uh, less in terms of the antagonistic encounters between men and women online or even, you know, men posting negatively about women or women posting negatively about men uh, within their own subcultures. I guess what I was trying to get at there was that there is this sense, uh, at least that I get from uh, speaking with other people in my generation who would be the millennials, as well as some of the younger generation. I'm a a, a late millennial, so I, I'm closer in some ways to some of the kids who are in Gen Z. There's a sense that the uh, there is almost a uh, a yearning for a kind of uh, of traditionalism, and I don't mean that in a political sense uh, necessarily, but in the fact that the women seem upset that they can't find uh, they can't find upright, strong, resourceful, um, attract frankly just attractive males that could provide for them. Uh, especially as they're moving into their late 20s, as many of my peers are. Uh, and then, of course, <clears throat> the men are upset because they feel like uh, the women, uh, particularly in the West, uh, have been sort of masculinized in a way. And so they're very difficult uh, to deal with because of the fact that they sort of view themselves as on the same par with the men. And so there's this weird um, uh, imbalance between the sexes. And uh, the women are, are, are kind of adversarial in that sense. And even though what they actually want is a man that can uh, provide for them and that that is uh, uh, that is strong and capable and whatnot, the women themselves also are sort of enculturated to come off as independent and strong and capable. And I believe that this is what I was trying to get at. And maybe I mischaracterized it when I said it was an anima and animus possession. Maybe that's 
something uh, quite different. But that's what I meant by that, that there's sort of this strange gender bending going on. You're getting a lot of feminized men. You're getting a lot of masculinized women. And what's happening is that, well, what the what they want, what, what one wants in the other is polarity, right? And and so if you're decreasing that polarity by bringing them closer to one another, well, then they're too similar. And, the, and that deter, that turns them off. Yeah, that's called entropy. When you have a, a system where you have a tension between hot particles and cold particles, then you have a potential in that system for energy. Once those particles begin to mix, then you have an increase of entropy to the point where eventually uh, you have ther thermodynamic equilibrium. In other words, there's no more potential energy in the system to be activated because it's lost the difference in, in the polarities. There, there's no longer a strong polarity. This is why Spengler calls this the decline of the West. We're living it. This is the disintegration of all social buffers, social norms, and the polarities between the sexes. Uh, the more you make uh, women like men and the more you make men like women, the more chaotic and confused and a mess it's going to be. So that's what we have, a mess. That's that's mm. what happens at the tail end of these civilizations when polarities begin to collapse. Mm. And I know, uh, I don't know if I want to get into Paglia right now, but I know Camille Paglia is also... Paglia. Yeah. Paglia has uh, has commented on sort of the history of uh, I'm just going to use the phrase gender bending uh, because it's quick and it avoids some of the other rhetorical traps that might be uh, laying in wait. But uh, that this is uh, not a, uh, a new phenomenon in the course of human history and that it actually, in her view, uh, is uh, concordant with uh, with certain very predictable uh, cultural conditions. <clears throat> um, and it has also this relationship to these uh, older mythologies that we were talking about before that are sort of the basis for uh, Western culture. In her view, uh, there is sort of the contrast between the uh, Apollonian and the Dionysian. Uh, but there is also the Thonian, which is uh, more uh, more terrestrial uh, in terms of its uh, association, uh, associated connections. Um, what do you think about uh, Paglia's theory of, of, of gender transformation throughout history? And uh, are we living, is that the reason why there's so much confusion uh, around uh, gender and sex in particular at this moment in time? Yeah, Paglia is very good uh, with gender studies I, and almost the only sane, sensible, reasonable person about this issue of gender studies because she's so erudite and so well-read. She knows her stuff, uh, so I like her quite a bit. That book, Sexual Persona, uh, mm. is absolutely fantastic, and I highly recommend it to, uh, to anyone. Yeah, but Polly is amazing. Um, so I would always rely on her to talk about differences in gender uh, because she's so good at it, uh, way better than I am. And uh, so, no, that's, <laughs> that's pretty much all I would have to say is I really enjoy listening to her, to her talk about the differences. All right. Um, and, uh, as I alluded to earlier, you've got a large stamp on YouTube. You're putting up all kinds of lectures and all kinds of videos. You're extremely prolific, uh, even outside of that context, given the number of books that you've published. Uh, so I wanted to ask you, what do you think your, uh, life project is in terms of your intellectual goals? How do you self-conceptualize what you're doing? Uh, to study civilization. I'm, I'm interested in why the whole thing that motivated me uh, right out of college was to study this idea of decline. What is it that causes a society to become unhealthy and degenerate? 
Uh, and what is it conversely, what are the forces that bring a civilization into being in the first place? It's a little mysterious that, that they're even here, that with this level of, of complexity and development. Um, so my fascination is with studying cultures almost as living organisms with immune systems that can go bad. Um, an immune system can be damaged, like for example, Theodosius the Great in 390, um, who is the first to make Christianity the only legal religion. Constantine in 330 had made it a tolerable religion, but now Theodosius decides to outlaw paganism, so he shuts down the Olympics, uh, the Temple of the Vestal Virgins, uh, you know, shuts down everything that has anything to do with paganism. Now he's so badly compromised the classical immune system that it cannot be an accident that 20 years later in 411, in come the German barbarians. Um, you've weakened a society's metaphysical immune system. Now it has no defense and it falls prey to ex what Toynbee calls external proletariats who just come right in and sweep it right off. Same thing with Byzantium when the Ottomans gobbled it up. Uh, Justinian's conquest of the Mediterranean was a huge tour de force trying to get back the land that was part of the Roman Empire. He wanted to sort of recenter Rome in Greece. Um, and it was a tour de force that absolutely drained and depleted the whole society. Uh, so it was easy prey when during the Fourth Crusade, the Westerners went in there, uh, raided them, uh, stole a bunch of stuff, brought back the iconotypes for Western art that started appearing in Giotto and Cimabue and so forth. Uh, but it's, it's a weakened society. So the Ottomans, no problem for them to get in there and just gobble it up like a piece of candy. So this fascinates me, this whole subject of cultural immune systems and what it is that makes a civilization weak, fall prey to another society, and what it is conversely that brings them into being. So this is my interest, is in studying the pathologies of civilizations as organisms. Mm. So uh, in that context, then, uh, what do you make of, uh, of uh, wokeness? Wokeness has been compared to a virus. I don't uh, get from you that you're particularly uh, woke yourself, but uh, I also don't really uh, have any conclusions that are firm about your political leanings, uh, from either this interaction or the other uh, interactions, or not interactions, but I guess uh, uh, reading and listening uh, uh, to your work that I've done. <clears throat> um, it's been characterized as a virus, and uh, interestingly enough, uh, there is a theory out there that one of the reasons why it has been so successful at uh, taking over a lot of our mainstream institutions, corporations, uh, you know, government agencies and so forth, is that there is this weakening of our, um, you can call it our metaphysical immune system. Some people compare it to a secular religion of sorts. Uh, I would say that it's more like a, I, I want to categorize it purely as an ideology um, or as a, I mean, really it's several ideologies that are sort of mixing together and appearing in various gradients. The point being, <clears throat> Do you agree with that interpretation then, uh, given that your focus has been on these uh, pathologies? And uh, as an add-on to that, like, do you think that Western culture is uh, is going to preserve itself, or are we nearing a, a, a crisis point in terms of uh, its integrity? Uh, no, it, it'll preserve itself. This is an incredibly metaphysically rooted and strong civilization. It does not have a weak immune system, the Faustian civilization. Um, so we're not going to wind up in the position of Byzantium or anything like that. This is not going to happen. We have a very strong sense, both Europe and America, of who we are as a people. Um, that's not in jeopardy. 
But now with the question of wokeness, yeah, I think I think of wokeness as equivalent to a kind of autoimmune cultural disease um, because it, it ends up being cancel culture and you get this whole fury of uh, destroying statues and pulling them down, uh, which is completely ridiculous. Doesn't matter whether these men owned slaves or were racist or not. What matters about them is that the reason those statues are there is because they came out of maximal stress events in the culture, maximal stress events that were foundational for achieving our identity as a people, as an American people distinct from Europe, um, still the same civilization, but a different people. And um, those are markers of those events uh, that give us a sense of who we are. Oh, there on my uh, $5 bill, there's Abraham Lincoln. This was the guy you know, who led us out of slavery. Uh, you, know, you can't go in and just cross an X over that and say, oh no, he was this, he was that. Lincoln was bipolar. Uh, MLK had affairs with women, he cheated on his wife. You know, we could object to that. Um, no, there's there's always something to object to when great people achieve great things, that no one is perfect or innocent. It just doesn't work that way. So cancel culture, uh, in taking away those icons, it, you know, it is an attempt. I don't, it would, I don't think it would ever be a success, but it is an attempt to weaken the cultural immune system, the metaphysical immune system of America specifically. Um, and the, the more, the weaker a culture's immune system gets, the more you're going to get other cultures coming in, eyeballing what you've got and are willing to take it away from you. Um, that's what will happen as the result of that. And these people are naive because they haven't studied history. They don't know that this, these are the dynamics of how you weaken a society and how that works. So I have nothing, well, it's, I have nothing nice to say about wokeness. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm generally well, apolitical. I keep away from politics. It doesn't interest me. Uh, but wokeness in particular, I, I find repugnant. So I'll say well, that. I, I think anyone that has half a brain uh, and any kind of respect for the humanities finds uh, the whole enterprise absolutely repulsive. I mean, uh, you're 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 putting the higher in service of uh, of the lower. And so it's it's almost a satanic enterprise in that sense. Um, all right, John. Well, uh so far, we've we've worked through quite a lot here. I wanted to ask you a few more questions about Carl Schmitt's uh, political theology. Sure. Um, and this is the relationship, uh, for those of you who may not know, and maybe you can explain this a little bit better after I uh, present the question. Um, this is the relationship of, uh, of metaphysics or a metaphysical understanding to the state and notions of sovereignty. And what it means to be sovereign in a Schmittian sense is the sovereign is uh, who is in charge during the state of exception? That is during an abnormal crisis period. Uh, who gets who gets deferred to as uh, as the authority? Uh, do you believe that with the coronavirus we are in a state of exception uh, right now in the Schmidtian sense? And uh, with all of our uh, prior discussion of uh, of metaphysics um, and the metaphysical lineage that we belong to uh, here in the West. Uh, is that related to this sort of theological problem more broadly that we're having? Yes. Uh, so Carl Schmitt uh, was a Catholic. He came out of a Catholic background, hence the title political theology. It's got this sort of uh, almost religious inflection to it. Um, it's a short book um, written, I think it was during the 1920s, during the Weimar Republic. Uh, and Schmitt later became a Nazi and the Nazis picked him up. And he became one of their primary political theoreticians. He wrote a masterpiece, as far as I'm concerned, called The Nomos of the Earth uh, after World War II was over. Um, and even though he was a Nazi, he is rather popular on the left. Uh, Agamben, uh, who was on the left, uh, studied him 
Uh, you can't even understand Homo Saker without understanding Carl, Carl Schmidt. You'll get nowhere with it. Same way you cannot understand Derrida without knowing Heidegger. You'll get nowhere with grammatology. I guarantee that. Um, so certain prerequisites are necessary. A lot of people, when they approach difficult books, don't understand that difficult books don't come out of a vacuum. They come out of a thinker's relation to another thinker or other thinkers. And you need to know those prerequisites first before going into the tough one. That's just how it works. And so with Carl Schmidt, yeah, we have this idea that uh, the sovereign is the one who decides on who is in command in the state of exception and decides whether it is or a state of exception or not, and whether this individual has the right to suspend the Constitution uh, to grant emergency powers, as the Romans did over and over again, uh, starting, I believe, with uh, Sulla. Sulla is the first to declare in Rome a permanent state of exception and to assume Already, he's kind of a Caesar figure before Caesar to, to assume full dictatorial powers, which he held for the rest of his life. Uh, so in a way, you, you know, you could draw Caesarism with him instead of Julius Caesar first. Uh, but it's a tendency. It's a, it's a gradual thing that, that we move into. As far as a state of exception right now, no, I don't think not really, uh, because no one's in charge as a dictator who's telling us that, you know, we, we can't leave our houses. Um, that's what I was afraid it was going to turn into when this first started. Um, it's just a lot of caution. Make sure you wear a face mask, keep social distancing. It's not really a state of exception in the Schmidtian sense, but it is a, it, it is a crisis. It is a, what I would say, Paul, let's shift to the language of Paul Virilio and call it the first global accident. Um, Paul Virilio had been talking about the possibility of a global accident forever because he always had this idea that every new technology brings along with it its own catastrophe. When you invent uh, the ship, you invent the shipwreck. When you invent flight, you invent the plane wreck, which is in the myth of Daedalus, right? Uh, building, inventing flight uh, and flying off with his son, and then his son crashes. Um, so the myths recognize that. And so he was saying that now we have this globalized society, uh, sooner or later, the conditions are going to be ripe for a global accident to take place. And I think the coronavirus is global accident number one. I don't think we're done yet, though. I think uh, we haven't seen the big one yet that would have to do with the crash of our informational systems. Um, if that happens, then, yeah, we're looking at a gigantic global crisis on the verge of a new dark age, perhaps even. So uh, so I would characterize the, the present situation in that way as a kind of the first global accident where we all realize simultaneously on the globe that we're all in the same boat vis-a-vis -vis this particular crisis. But it is not yet a, a Schmidtian state of exception where one sovereign, uh, you know, creates martial law and tells us we can't leave our houses. That's a whole different <laughs> That's a whole different level of uh, uh, authoritarianism. Is the increased mix so the increased mixing of uh, of the virtual with the real has been a theme, uh, strangely, throughout the last several of my conversations with various guests uh, who I've had on for a diverse set of topics, not not at all necessarily related to one another, and yet this theme keeps coming up. Uh, again and again and again and again about um, this, uh, you know, the, the mixing of the virtual and the real. And I wanted to ask you, uh, is that very close to the idea of Maya that you were talking about earlier, of, of being in the dream, the, the spending more and more time sort of. in a simulated reality? Yeah, sort of. I, I think this is a good point because this is one of the main, uh, let's say, themes of what I call hypermodernity which I see coming in with the internet, 1995, when it's turned over to the public sector, 
and then it slowly melts down all analog media. Uh, shopping malls are now, you know, they're a thing of the past. And, and that whole postmodern world has been melted down and liquidated by the technological, the, what I call in, in one of my books, the new media invasion of hypermodernity that has forced us uh, to catch up and conform and change all of our analog habits to digital ones. Um, so that's what's happened. And then along with that, then we have the uh, inability to discern the virtual from the real. They become intermixed uh, as a result of the mind engaging with this screen and creating a feedback loop with it. Um, and you get uh, you know, some, a lot of people going nuts, doing crazy things. All this was foreshadowed though, I would say in the novels of Philip K. Dick, um, who's embedded back in postmodernity in, in the 1960s and 70s, but nonetheless, in many ways, he's the prophet of it, um, which happens a lot. You, before an epoch actually explodes and becomes the official stage, you, you often get foreshadowings of it, um, just as Marcel Duchamp, let's say, uh, is already, even though he's in the modernist period, he's already laying the groundwork for contemporary art, post-World War II, postmodern art. He's, he's regarded as the sort of prophet of, of postmodern art. Um, so I see Philip K. Dick as the prophet of this and all of his wonderful novels about characters who can't discern whether they're in a simulacrum or whether it's real. Um, so, and The Truman Show is a film that's based on one of his novels, Time Out of Joint. Uh, it's a wonderful capturing of the, the, the paranoid narrative, which is another theme of post-modernity that is carried over into hypermodernity. Of Is all of this real or are we in a dream? David Cronenberg's film Existence in 1999 does the same thing where they, the characters can't figure out whether they're still in the game or whether it's real reality. So it, it's, I think the subject is coming up for a reason because it's relevant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. It has a lot of salience uh, and uh, people are feeling it. And so they're wanting to talk about it with one another to kind of uh, begin to articulate the felt sense, I would say. Um, so you're a, a lifelong intellectual, but unlike uh, many of the people that I interview, you're not uh, strictly associated with an institution, or at least you haven't been for quite a long time. Uh, and many of the other people that I interview are academics or they're aspiring academics, they're in graduate school, um, so sometimes they're adjuncts, sometimes they're tenured, uh, varying degrees, but basically all of them are um, sort of insiders, uh, or they're sort of outsiders on the inside, <laughs> the people that tend to come on the show. Um, and, uh, as somebody who uh, understood myself uh, within about, uh, I don't know, probably like the first six months of getting into college, that a an academic track was probably not how I was going to go, although I did go in wanting to be a professor. Uh, this show is an example of me wanting to continue an intellectual life on after college. I see you as somebody who has uh, pursued his own intellectual life and established a name for themselves. Um, uh, in your own in your own way, separate from these institutions, would you have any advice for someone that is trying to live an intellectual life in public uh, that's not necessarily tied to these institutions? Uh, because I know for me, at least, and, and many of the people coming up in my generation, thanks to the Internet, uh, we have the access to more platforms and we don't necessarily need to be as associated with an institution as you might have before in previous generations. But the downside to that is that there are many, many tripwires. There are pitfalls, there are traps, there are things that you could fall into that will damage your reputation, make it harder for you to be employed, make it harder for you to do collaborations in the future, all kinds of different um, scary things that you need to avoid if you're going to do this. Uh, it's sort of like walking on a on a tightrope. Uh, 
What advice would you have for someone who's uh, maybe younger and trying to begin to pursue an intellectual life outside of the normal academic track? Sure. Uh, it all depends on what you want. Uh, people who are associated with safe havens or, or associated with institutions are looking for a safe haven. They're looking for a place where they can have a stable income, uh, have a reputation that they can uphold, that's respectable. Uh, they're associated with an institution. And it becomes a kind of protective womb for them. And they can still be an insider within that. Let's say like Marshall McLuhan was at the University of Toronto or Heidegger, you know, uh, at Freiburg. Um, they can still be rebels sort of uh, and rock the boat a bit, but and still have the safety of the protection of the institution that they're with. Nietzsche tried it and it didn't work for him. Uh, he was a professor for a while, but the moment he published The Birth of Tragedy at the age of 24, uh, it rocked the boat. And I think there was a lot of professional jealousy and I think that was the real reason why he was sort of proscribed and he got so many bad vibes there. It, it just drove him out. So it depends on what you're looking for. Now, in my case, uh, I managed to make it work barely and it took forever. Uh, leaving uh, academe, I got my BA in English from Arizona State University and never looked back because uh, I knew that uh, institutions, universities would be restrictive and constrictive and not productive for me. Um, I knew they wouldn't try to get me to specialize and I don't want to be a specialist. I want to see all the, how the whole big picture fits together. So I knew I was on my own right from the start. So, uh, as a result of that, you know, I've spent my life working what are called writer's jobs. Uh, I've worked construction, I've worked in bookstores, I've worked retail, I've worked this, I've worked that. So you bounce around for a while looking for whatever niche you can find to find reading time in to get your reading done. And it is a real struggle especially once you get married, uh, as I was for 15 years, then you have a kid and it gets even tougher then with the kid. Uh, it, it was, it really ruined my marriage pre pretty much, but I persisted in being a nomad because I knew that, um, I don't work well with institutions. Uh, they invariably take a disliking to me for being too autonomous and I'm just too autonomous. I can't be constrained and uh, institutions don't like that because they have reputations. Uh, and if you say something, the wrong thing, you know, then you become like Kurtz in Apocalypse Now. You know, you're, <laughs> you're persona non grata. So sorry, we don't need you around. In fact, let's assassinate the guy. Um, mm. So th that's, that's the problem with being a nomad. To my extent, I've taken autonomy as far as it'll go. Now I've made it work thanks to the internet um, and have a stable income and don't have to worry about uh, stupid writer's jobs anymore. I've made it work through persistence and patience and a lot of hard work and putting up with a lot of shit. Um, and there has been, yeah, a lot of prices that I've had to pay, uh, friends that I've lost, collaborations that can't happen again. Sure, all, all that does happen. Justin Murphy, I have great respect for uh, as another type of guy who's managed to go his own way. He uh, was stuck in academe in a, in a situation that he didn't like, that felt constrained and uncomfortable with. Uh, he played the game, gotten his PhD, uh, but he left and he figured out how to make it via the Internet with the creation of his Indie Thinkers platform that I just finished teaching the young course for. And we're going to do a course on Marshall McLuhan uh, later in the year, too. I'm excited uh, so, about that. Yeah. And so I, I'm really uh, amazed with how Justin figured was smart enough to figure it out how to go, how to work, how to leave the protection of the institution and go his own way. Because once you do that, you really are on your own. <laughs> You're on your own once you decide to, to be a nomad. So, uh, yeah. So there, you know, I made it work. Uh, although, you know, my path, I think it was a lot rougher than Justin's, but he's made it work. Um, other people can make it work, too. It just depends on what you want.
Yeah, there's a lot of opportunity out there, but it might uh, it might take some time, and it's definitely going to take a lot of work because there, there's a price uh, for everything. That's the thing I've learned at age 52. You don't get anything free on this planet. It does. It just yeah. doesn't work that way. Everyone's looking for the the free ticket. There isn't one. Every situation that you are in, you are going to pay some type of price for. That's just the way it works. You just have to find the price tag that you're comfortable with paying. <laughs> That's all it is. Uh, yeah, well, John, this has been absolutely pleasurable. And uh, again, I just want to thank you so much for sharing this period of time with me. Uh, a few more questions before I let you go. Uh, what are you working on right now? What have you been uh, What have you been writing about? What have you been interested oh, uh, in? What have you been researching? Well, I've been most most of my time has been taken up now by teaching. Uh, after the Young Seminar, I just did a, a brief uh, give a talk on Apocalypse Now for a different Young platform in South Africa the Center for Applied Jungian Studies in Cape Town, South Africa. And then I'll be doing an eight-week course for them in May, June on my book, Art After Metaphysics. Uh, so we'll talk about that. And then eventually, uh, Justin and I will get around to McLuhan, I think I think in the fall is my guess. And uh, so that's been eating up a lot of my time. What time I have, though, I have been working on a very large project about literature. Uh, it's called Literature After History. Uh, so literature from post uh, everything after World War II, all the way down through hypermodernity. Um, and so I've been working on that, doing video versions of it for the time being as a way of going back through my favorite texts and thinking about them. And then I'll draw out notes uh, at some point and start the actual writing of, of them. It's a similar process to what I did to the autobiography, but it's a much bigger scope. Um, it may end up being a trilogy on modernist books first, then the postmodern books, and then the hypermodern ones. So it, it may end up being a three volume set so this is the project i usually write very short books but this one will not be short i promise <laughs> it's going to be a big deal so it's going to take a while to, to work my way through it um mm. yep, so. well i'm sure anyone listening uh, would be excited to uh to see what what the final product looks like uh well john last thing before i let you go uh what would you say is man maybe this is too cliche I, i'm gonna ask it John, what do you think is the meaning of life? You've done a lot of, uh, you know, work in existentialism, ontology, you know, assessing human ideas about meaning. I know you have your own very complicated uh, spiritual worldview as well. What do you think that we're here to do? Or maybe that you're here to do, whichever. We all come here for different reasons. Karmically, we come here for karmic reasons that have implications from past lives. Uh, and every time we incarnate, um, we've got a new set of tasks that we want to accomplish. So it's not so much about a meaning to life, I think, as performing a task. We come into the world with specific intentions for specific things that we want to do. Uh, and so the task is finding out what it is that you came here to do and make sure you get it right. Align yourself with it. Don't get lost on you know, taking a nine to five job if that's not what you came here to do. Uh, if you came here to be a drunk, uh, as I've heard some people do come to experience, some people do, they come to experience drugs. Um, it's it not morality has nothing to do with the other side, nothing whatsoever. They come here to experience experiences on the physical plane. Uh, it's a different world. It's harder. It's tougher. It's a world of pain and suffering. They don't have that on the other side. That's why they're so curious about it down here. That's why we come here. What can I do with my task in a world with that's this hard? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's like, uh, you know, trying to accomplish something that you're determined to accomplish. Um, despite all the resistance that you get, 
weightlifting or whatever it is that you're that you have to exert energy against resistance that's what life is on the physical plane that's why we come here and everybody has a different karmic thing that they came here to experience so there's all kinds of different meanings the world means all kinds of different things there's many meanings in the world as there are people so that's the thing that's a great answer uh well thank you so much john i really appreciate it um and uh that's all folks thank you for having me alex it was a blast i really enjoyed it and uh i look forward to uh watching back through it and also your other shows uh, yeah send, make sure to send me links sure <laughs>